Welcome to Inside Medicine, a podcast for the intellectually curious and especially for those who want to get close to the truth in science and medicine. We have conversations with leading scientists, physicians, and innovators in the spirit of educating and inspiring you to take actions today that will benefit your long-term health. The future of medicine is here, and our goal is to bring it to you now. We hope you enjoy the show, and if you do, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jordan Schlain, founder of Private Medical, and today I'm pleased to introduce part three of four in our series on neuroscience. We'll speak to doctors who are at the forefront of understanding the brain, the science behind cognition, injury states, mental health, and mindfulness. In this episode, we'll explore the renaissance of psychedelic research with Dr. Josh Woolley, professor at UCSF's Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences and the director of the Translational Psychedelic Research Program, otherwise known as TRIPPER. Bringing together scientists and care providers across disciplines, they work to understand how psilocybin, LSD, ketamine, MDMA, and related compounds impact the brain and other organ systems to treat depression, trauma, and other ailments, including Parkinson's, bipolar disorder, and lower back pain. We'll discuss the limits of SSRIs, why researchers chose psilocybin out of all the drugs classified as psychedelics, and keeping our expectations balanced when it comes to psychedelic therapy. For today's conversation, we're joined by my co-host, New York cardiologist, Dr. Hadi Halazun. Hey, Jordan. Nice to be here. Josh, thanks for joining us today. Well, my pleasure. Excited to be here. So it's not often we get someone so in the in the in the weeds and as smart as you are on on psychedelics. So your background is is fascinating. You're a psychiatrist, and I'm just wondering. Uh, does every psychiatrist's journey start off with, as a young kid, they knew they wanted to be a psychiatrist, or or did you wander into it? When I was in med school, I, I was sure I was going to be a neurologist. I was sure. I was like, I had read Oliver Sacks' book, and I was like, this is amazing. He's amazing. I'm going to be a neurologist. And uh, I did, actually, I did an MD-PhD, so I have a PhD in neuroscience, and all my mentors were neurologists for my PhD. And I was like, I'm not going to do any of that talky-feely psychiatry stuff. Uh, and then when I went back to the second part of med school, the third year, and did my clinical rotations, I went on neurology, and I just, it wasn't for me. I was just, it just wasn't working, and all the people in comas, and I, I just, I, I just, it, it was so depressing, <laughs> and I kept on trying at it. Did it have to do with that your only treatment was aspirin? <laughs> hey, hey, I, they, Oh, no, I'm kidding. I, 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 I hope yeah. the neurologist... <laughs> That was back then. That was back then. No, no. They have brain cooling too, right? You know? <laughs> uh, uh, I don't know what it was. It was just, it wasn't for me. And then I did my psychiatry rotation and I really felt at home. Then I, I switched over to psychiatry and I haven't looked back. I didn't know I was going to be a psychedelic researcher then, uh, though. I, I, I um, you know, I've been doing uh, pharmacological research for various psychiatric disorders for, oh my God, it's embarrassing now. So what, 15 years now. And, uh, I would say that my gateway drug was was oxytocin. Oxytocin is this neuropeptide, and you can give it intranasally, and it gets into the brain. And it's probably involved in multiple things, but but has effects on social behavior. And I thought that was pretty interesting, given that um, so many of my patients, uh, you know, uh, what they really needed was a friend, you know, and I, and 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 they had trouble making friends. You know, one of my mentors held up the DSM and said, you know, this is loneliness in ver various forms, you know. Maybe maybe just to be clear so that people know what the DSM is. It's, it's basically the Bible of psychiatry. It kind of gives you the, the 
the different checky boxes that defines the different disorders. doesn't mean that those things are real entities, but it at least allows us all to use the same language. Um, I think the bigger point is getting away from the DSM is that so much of mental illness uh, basically uh, leads to people being socially isolated for various reasons. And then being socially isolated makes almost every mental illness worse. And so I thought that was really profound and uh, I wanted to try and help with that. And so oxytocin was a place to start. Now, oxytocin is not that fun <laughs> because it doesn't cause any subjective effects. Like you can't feel it when you're on it. Uh, but, it, you know, it was, I did a lot of research and, and found some interesting things. And um, one of the things we were doing was to see if oxytocin could uh, augment psychotherapy, right? So if psychotherapy depends on um, rapport building and, and, and therapeutic alliance and oxytocin was having social effects, maybe we could use it to accelerate that. Uh, so we were doing that work. And I went to the house of uh, a man named George Sarlo. He, you know, he's been featured in the New York Times. You can search search him actually. So he's out. I'm not I'm not giving away any of his secrets. But uh, he he is a Hungarian um, Jew who survived the Holocaust. He you know escaped as a child from Hungary, and had been having a lot of trouble with PTSD his whole life. And he had become very successful, but had tried lots of different treatments. Um, and then in his 60s and 70s, he had discovered psychedelics and he was regaling us with his experiences with ayahuasca and psilocybin and um, how this had helped him. And this was right at the beginning of the current, you know, renaissance of psychedelic research. You know, the, the studies at Hopkins and NYU were, were, were happening and I had seen some talks about it and was thinking about it. Um, and I said to him, you know, we're already doing drug assisted psychotherapy, just not a psychedelic drug. And uh, we would love to do this kind of work. So he, he helped us make that happen. Can you give us an idea when, when that was? Like, like what year was this? If you don't... It was uh, like 2016. You know, Josh, I, I know this is not the point of this podcast, but you touch on two things that are very, very incredibly important. One is the, the loneliness and its effect on mental illness. I think we're discovering that loneliness and isolation, social isolation has effects on every illness, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, all of it. Well, even even longevity, even longevity, most importantly, probably. Yeah, that's right. I mean, as a psychiatrist, that was what I was seeing. Like, like I had one patient um, who said to me, um, the meds make the voices go away, but the voices keep me company. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And that really hit me because, you know, like as a, as a young psychiatrist trainee, I was like really worked up about the voices. I'm like, oh my gosh, you're hearing voices. Let's do something about that. And you know, and, that, and I don't want to say antipsychotics have not helped change people's lives, but but uh, getting rid of the voices isn't always what the patients want or need. You know, like having relationships, being able to work and love. Right. And we didn't have any pharmacology that could help people with that, even though we know it's not magic; it's in the brain. Um, that you know the, the abilities to do that, and and uh, sorry, getting back to your for your your main point, which is yeah, social isolation is just really bad for us. <laughs> it's bad for us in all sorts of ways. And we die early. You know, there's some meta analyses that suggest that it's as bad as smoking, or you know, in, in terms of uh, your effects on health. Um, so it's 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 a significant problem, and modern society, you know, has not been great for social connection in a lot of ways. So, so I know that you did some research on HIV patients, and that that was a kind of a turning point in your career. Could you could you maybe tell us a little bit about that? Uh... So, you know, th that story I just told you about uh, George Sarlo and how we 
got funding to do psychedelic research, there was excitement. There was like, yeah, UCSF, you know, San Francisco, this is, you know, this is where the psychedelic research should be happening. You know, this is, you know, <laughs> the mothership or, you know, different, different things people were saying. And we were like, oh, okay, so what should our first study be? Well, what do we want to look at? And, you know, at the same time, these cancer studies were being done with psychedelics, again, at Hopkins and NYU. And the idea there were, was people who were dying of cancer who had existential distress and could psilocybin therapy help them come to terms with that. That was, and, and, and those studies have now been published and they're, they're quite high quality. And they suggest, suggest, yes, yes, indeed, you can help people kind of come to terms with this sort of existential crisis of you know, impending death. Um, and so we kind of took a different angle on a similar thing, which is, we, you know, and also something near and dear to our hearts in, in San Francisco, which is long-term AIDS survivors. So these, were, these are individuals who were diagnosed bet- before 1996 with HIV. And for them, it was a death sentence. And so before there were no treatments for HIV, and before 1996, you know, almost everyone died, and they, you know, the whole a whole community was sort of wiped out, a whole generation, if you will. And it wasn't just any death; it was often a stigmatized, horrible death, right? A gay men's disease, and you know, I've only read about it or heard stories, but you know, people were thrown off buses, and you know, many uh, uh, healthcare providers refused to work, and. I mean, it was, it's hard to even understand now when I, when I read about it and learn about it. And yet some people who were diagnosed before 1996 didn't die, uh, either because they were a genetic non-progressor, you know, had a genetic, ab- not abnormality, but a variation that made HIV less effective in their cells, or the timing was such that the meds came around just in time to save them. And so there are these people who went through that horrible time, thought they were going to die, and then didn't, and now are still alive. And luckily, HIV has changed as an illness. It's not a death sentence anymore. It's much more like a chronic illness that can be managed. And for many of these people, their their life expectancy is not any shorter than other people who don't have HIV, which, you know, is great, <laughs> you know, mission accomplished in a lot of ways, but they have a lot of sequelae of this horrible time, you know, trauma, guilt, existential distress. And we wanted to see, can we use psilocybin to help these people who are kind of stuck? You know, they have this, this chronic survivor's guilt. And we both wanted to do that because these are people that are suffering and we wanted to see if we could help them. But we also kind of saw it as a model, right, of, of, a, of people who have gone through a horrible thing and survived, like, like a war or a natural disaster or maybe even a global pandemic. And, you know, the idea was to see, like, could we help people like this? Maybe not... HIV survivors all the time, but but maybe other people who have you know survived where other people haven't. The other thing that we did that was uh, unique in the study at the time wasn't all the other studies that were being done were were doing the psychotherapy individually. So it was like one patient, two therapists, and they would go through the study. But we had heard that some of the people in the Hopkins study actually really wanted to speak to other participants in the study, which is very unusual. And, and I mean. It's maybe not unusual in psychedelic studies, but it's very unusual in psychiatry studies. Like nobody in a Prozac trial is like, oh, I want to speak to the other people who got Prozac. Like that just never happens. Nobody ever in my oxytocin trial ever wanted to speak to anyone else. But in the psychedelic trials, they really did. And, you know, it's probably something about psychedelics. And so we thought, well, why make them go outside the study to talk to each other? Why not harness that 
in a group therapy approach. And, you know, group therapy has a long history, both in psychedelics and in regular psychotherapy, as a very efficient way of delivering care. And the group itself can also often carry a lot of the work by helping each other. Another goal of ours was to try and decrease loneliness and social isolation. So why not have them practice in the group as opposed to making them try to make friends, you know, outside the study? Um, yeah, so that's that's what we did, and it worked pretty well. And so psilocybin versus, I guess, all these other different psychedelics. Maybe maybe you could give it a rundown. Tell us, like, <laughs> yeah, give us a rundown on what is the what is the the menu, so to speak, of, of psychedelics these days. I mean, I know there's lots of new ones that are being that are being all synthesized. Yeah. And, I mean, I guess some are plant based, and some are made in the lab, and some are made in the lab based on some that are plant-based, but like, how do you think about the taxonomy of, of psychedelics? You know, psilocybin is the active ingredient, or it's actually, yes, yeah, the active ingredient in hallucinogenic mushrooms. And there turns out there are a lot of related, there are 180 different species of mushrooms that kind of all look alike, little brown mushrooms that make psilocybin. And, you know, people have been using the mushrooms for thousands and thousands of years for ceremonial and religious and other practices. The, the psilocybin is in your body is quickly metabolized to psilocin, which is the active metabolite, which is the one that actually, you know, causes all the psychedelic effects. You can't, no one is studying the mushrooms per se, really, in any trial, because the mushrooms are highly variable. I mean, they... They get you high. I mean, they, they'll make you trip, but each batch is a little different. Each mushroom's a little different. Even within a single mushroom, different parts of the mushroom will have different concentrations. And so it's, you know, it's not standardized. You can't, you don't know how much you're getting. And, you know, people who have used mushrooms out in the world will know about this. You, you kind of have to kind of figure it out. And sometimes you get the underdose and sometimes people take too much. And it's, it's you know, there's some skill to it, I guess. So no one's studying the full mushroom. All the, almost all the trials that have been done in the modern era use synthetic psilocybin. So, you know, in the lab, people have made it very, you know, just psilocybin and in a pill. And the way I kind of think about it is it's like um, caffeine versus coffee, right? Like caffeine, you know, that'll make you kind of alert and things. But coffee is a much bigger experience. And most of least the caffeine that's getting you there, but it has a flavor and it has other molecules in there that are complex that are all probably in the mushroom too. Mushroom has a lot of other compounds. We actually are doing a study right now in collaboration with a company, Filament Health, that you know has basically extracted compounds from the mushroom and have put them in a pill in a consistent form. And that's probably as close to studying the mushroom as anyone's gonna do. Because uh, it has all the stuff in it, but it's the same every time, which is really important for a, a drug trial. Why did they pick psilocybin in this renaissance to be the main drug that people are studying? I've actually asked some of the people, and you know, you get different answers. One is that psilocybin was not in the zeitgeist the way that LSD was, so people didn't have a lot of baggage with it. Also, the time course when you take psilocybin is usually about six hours, so it fits within a workday, which is important if you're thinking about scalability. And I think there was always the sense that, you know, if pharma got too aggressive, people could always just kind of grow mushrooms. <laughs> I think that was another whole idea that people had. And, and Josh, can I ask you, so, you know, to go back to how does it work? Because, you know, we think of, <laughs> we, we think of depression and, and these disorders as a, as an imbalance of certain neurohormones, so to speak. And then the drugs that are available right now play a role in increasing or decreasing. Uh, where does psilocybin fit in that in the, on the neurobiology there? 
I would say that the the neurobiology of depression is is really complex and it's not obvious. You know, it's like the the like low serotonin hypothesis hasn't really panned out. There was this paper recently that kind of you know really argued that it's not that. I can't look in anyone's brain and be like, oh, this person's depressed and that person isn't. That that actually has been a real challenge. So how does it work? How do psychedelics work? I mean, that's a great I'm question. happy to say we just don't know yet. And it's that's satisfactory. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I will say, I will go farther than that. I mean, I would say we don't totally, we don't know. It's, I, mean, I can stop there. We don't know. But we have some ideas. One big question is how does psychotherapy work, right? We know that psychotherapy helps a lot of people. This is just like regular talk therapy. Like that is pretty widely, you know, a lot of studies have shown it helps people. People really benefit from it. But how does it work? It's a little bit, it's not magical. It's obviously, it changes the brain. It's not, you know, there's no ether. But exactly how it works is really difficult. And when you ask people, you'll usually get things that are like psychological mechanisms. Like, oh, it helps you have insight or it helps you change your thought patterns, you know, like stuff like that that's in the in the psychological realm. But of course, that has to be instantiated in the brain. Um, it's just that we're not directly um, poking on the brain or hitting it with a drug, right? So, so sometimes talking, I mean, talking is a very effective way to get in there, but it's slow. So, so psychedelic therapy involves psychotherapy. I think that's one really important thing I want to tell everyone, that the way it's been done in all the clinical trials is... Uh, is that people do a little bit of therapy, about six hours of what's called preparation, which is talking, getting to, getting to know the therapist, building rapport, kind of learning what might happen, setting an intention. And then the dosing session, which is a high dose and lasts all day. And then there's integration afterwards, which can usually is about six hours, but it can, you know, different studies have been doing it different ways. And the integration is more psychotherapy, kind of integrating this experience. And so there's definitely a lot of talk and whatever regular psychotherapy is, is probably happening in there. So we don't know how that works, but the, the, the working model that most people have, the, not everyone, and it's not proven, is that what the psychedelics do is that they actually induce a state of plasticity. They allow the brain to be changeable temporarily for days, or weeks, we don't know. And during that plastic time, you can change things about yourself. So like Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, right? Like it's a good, it was a great title. <laughs> the idea being that people can change these ingrained patterns of thoughts and emotions and behavior. And so the obvious one would be substance use disorders, right? I have a habit and I use alcohol and I know that it's killing me, but I can't stop. You can imagine opening up a critical period. So now you can change your habit more easily than usual. But you can imagine other things too, like depression, you know, negative negative self um, cognitions, you think bad things about yourself, or you kind of always Im imagine the worst, or you interpret things negatively. These are all psychological mechanisms that people have found in people with depression. They're difficult to change. Another one would be PTSD, right? Like, you know, the classic PTSD story is you're going along, you're fine, something horrible happens, and you've now adapted to that such that you are very vigilant and on edge and can't sleep and you're like ready for danger all the time, which is good if you're in a war zone, but it's not so good if you're in a civilian and you can't go back. The brain's like, oh, that was scary, dangerous. We're in, we don't trust that this is safe anymore. And that's very difficult. You could imagine that if you could reopen a critical period, maybe you could go back. So, 
So that's the working model. I don't, you know, I could be wrong. We all could be wrong about this. This, this is just a hypothesis, but, but it does kind of put together a lot of things. Like one of the paradoxes of psychedelics is that millions and millions of people use psychedelics all the time. Burning Man, you know, raves, people like it. They're, they're fun. People use them for fun all the time. Over 10% of Americans have used uh, psychedelics and that number is going up every year. Uh, and many of those people don't treat their addictions or treat their depression. And one hypothesis is that if you just open a critical period, but you don't deliver this sort of intervention to, to shape people in a particular way, to help them change in, the, in a healthy way, like say giving up alcohol, then they don't change because it was just a plastic state, but it matters what you do during that state. Can it get worse? Let's say you do a psilocybin session, this guy's walking home, sees a car, horrible car crash. Can it, can it? It's something I worry about. It's something I worry about that, you know, that there, if you, you know, you do hear anecdotes of things, not exactly like what you're describing, but anecdotes of people changing in ways that are we would think of as unhealthy. Uh, the most classic is the cults, right? So many, many cults have used psychedelics. Now they're difficult to study, uh, but you know the fact that many cults have used uh, psychedelics does give me pause, right? Because you could imagine if you had nefarious intent and you were reopening critical periods and allowing things to change, you know, cult leaders people might want to do that, right? They might want to change people to be followers or to have ideas about things. Uh, none of this modern studies have tried to test this hypothesis or tried to cause anything negative because that would be unethical. But, you know, you do hear some stories about things where people might change in ways that, that are um, kind of concerning. One interesting thing about it, though, is that, uh, how do I put this? It, when people change, they almost never complain about it. They're happy about the change. They never come back and say, oh, now I'm different. They say, this new me is better, <laughs> uh, which is a good thing, I think, but it does give me pause and makes me kind of, I don't know, wonder sometimes. That's interesting because I, you know, you said 10% of people have done uh, psilocybin and I imagine that's, well, A, that's a large number, but I imagine if there were real negative uh, consequences to that, that, that Th those would somehow manifest and, and we would we would see them right or there would be this known really bad thing for doing that you know uh, unlike heroin where people take heroin they, they stop breathing they walk in the middle of the road they, they they do things that are completely you know detrimental to themselves yeah so it's not like that right so i usually when i give a talk i have this slide that has the lethal dose over the active dose on the x-axis and the risk for dependency potential on the y-axis. So the things in the top right corner are sort of the bad boys of pharmacology. And there you have heroin and cocaine is up there. And these drugs that, that if you overdose, you die. So heroin is that, right? Like it's easy to overdose on it. And, and then you stop breathing, which is bad. And then, and then also if you use it, many people become dependent. So meaning they sort of escalate their dose, they use more and more, their life becomes more and more focused on getting the drug, right? So with those outcomes, which is what we usually think about for a drug, psychedelics are in the bottom low left corner. They are, the lethal dose is sort of theoretical, like, you know, it doesn't stop your heart. You don't stop breathing with high doses. And then you also, there, there aren't addicts in the same way. People don't escalate their dose of, of psilocybin. It's like vanishingly rare, you know, in our studies and survey work, you know, people will say things like, greatest experience of my life, also the worst, you know, like that's, that's a pretty common thing. And people are like, 
actually, I'm good. I'll be good. <laughs> you know, I'll come back in a year or something. Like people don't use it all the time, but but people use it and, and do find it beneficial. I think Hattie's point is, you know, are we are are people being changed in ways like I don't know. Here's a semi-theoretical story: high-achieving kid in college, parents, kind of tiger parents, uses LSD, drops it, realizes this is not the life he wants, drops out of college, uh, uh, gets a truck and lives in the truck, driving around the country. Is that a good outcome or a bad outcome? It really depends. The person in the story thinks it's a good outcome. And for them, they're like, this is egocentric. This is like, my life is better. But for the family, it's like, oh my God, what's happened? Right? And I think that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Like, you know, it, 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 I think this is something that we're going to grapple with. Like, just taking a step back, imagine that we really could turn on plasticity, like just on and off and change things about ourselves in ways that we don't usually do as adults. If we really could do that, then you could change things like political beliefs and fashion and all sorts of things that we usually think of as like part of like the, st the stable aspect of somebody. And that opens up all sorts of possibilities, both good and bad. So, so we, we've talked about a lot about psilocybin here, and I know there's a lot of other uh, substances out there that fall into the category of psychedelics. Like, is heroin is not considered a psychedelic, but it does psychedelic, I guess. I mean, what does the word psychedelic mean? I mean, psycha means was mind, and delic means what? Uh, Revealing. Uh, so, so psychedelic, you know, is a term coined, uh, which you know means mind manifesting. Right, so it's it's a sort of a functional definition, like it manifests your mind, but it's not clear what that means, right? And traditionally, or classically, or historically, that term has been used for serotonergic psychedelics, uh, so psilocybin, LSD, DMT, so that's the drug in ayahuasca, you know, a couple of others are all part of this sort of classic psychedelic class, but. You know, just like with antidepressants or antipsychotics, it's a functional definition. But then if the pharmacology kind of gets tweaked and tweaked, you know, like when do you leave that group? And what happens if you have a drug in the same class pharmacologically, but it doesn't manifest your mind? And that's why people are saying things like, oh, might, you might be able to have a non-psychedelic psychedelic, which if you think about the meaning of the word, it doesn't make any sense, right? That you might have a non Mind manifesting, mind manifesting drug. It doesn't make any sense, right? But you know, um, so so it's kind of a semantic thing where our words don't fit well onto what's happening in the world. I guess is what I say. You know, like people are like, cannabis is definitely not a psychedelic, but lots of people say it manifests their mind and helps them, you know, get in touch with things. It just has a very different feel. Ketamine is another place where people really argue and you can, oh God, if you want to, on Twitter, you'd be like, ketamine's a psychedelic. People will freak out. Like you have all this fighting or MDMA is definitely a psychedelic and people will fight, it, but they're fighting over naming. You know, everyone agrees that MDMA has a different pharmacology than psilocybin and ketamine has a different one as well. And that they're more different than psilocybin from LSD. So Josh, this has been amazing and fascinating. What are some of the mis big misconceptions in the field? Like to, to the to the general public that hears about this and doesn't get access to someone as smart and, and articulate as you, um, what, 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 what do you see people saying or asking you all the time that you're like, okay, now that's just baloney or that's just a misconception? There are a couple, but one that, that kind of makes me nervous is where people say, you know, psychedelics are going to be the miracle cure magic bullet for everything. 
you know, there are famous people who have said things like, we're going to get to trauma zero with psychedelics by 2070. I'm all for helping people with their trauma. I mean, trauma happens and it causes a lot of suffering. But the idea that we would get to a place where like nobody has unresolved trauma because of psychedelics, that's just, uh, yeah, I mean, it's hard to, hard to get your head around. Some people also go around saying things like, we're going to cure war, or climate change with psychedelics. And like, I hope that's true, but that's not something you do a clinical trial on. Like, there's no, <laughs> like, you can't have like war as an outcome measure. So, you know, that. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're such a scientist, man. I know. I was like, oh, how do you measure that? You know, like, right. So, so I worry about that. And like, that people's ex hopes for this or expectations are so high that it, it you know, it's, it's like past what is even possible. So I guess that's one thing that I, I would say that like, or put it another way, we have been burned many times before. Opioids, benzodiazepines, and meth. It turns out I just learned recently that, that you know, meth, methamphetamine was held out as like a major antidepressant. Like, it's going to be, it's, it's, it's so great. Right? Look at this. People have energy. They, they, they feel good. And like, it, there were some downsides. When I was a, a med student. <laughs> some? Yeah, there's some downs, you know, maybe a side effect or two, right? When I was a med student, my, um, I was trained, we were all trained, that uh, people in the hospital, you should give them opioids for their pain. And if you didn't, you, it was unethical because pain was the, you know, sixth vital. Fifth vital. Fifth sign. vital. I can never remember how many there. You kept changing. And that it was like unethical that to not treat it, that you were like torturing your patients and that they would never get addicted. And that wasn't true. That wasn't true. That caused a lot of problems, you know. So not to say that psychedelics are like that, but I just, you know, temper our, you know, we should be more balanced. You, you know what I think they're doing, if you don't mind me saying, is that you said you, you touched on this inadvertently in the beginning, is that what the studies looked for and what, psych, what psychedelics have helped, and this is where I think they're doing great, is it's, it's, it's making us question the questions we were asking about the efficacy of the previous medications. Like, you know, we, no one asked about loneliness in the SSRR trials. No one asked about empathy. No one asked about, you know, being part of the community. They just had a list of symptoms and they, and, and I think what the, the, the best thing psychedelics and psychedelic research may be is that it's, it's making us understand the true contributors and true symptoms of mental illness and psychiatric disease and, and so on and you know one of them is very big on for me is is loneliness and how perceived loneliness even is 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 one of the biggest determinants of how long you live and and how healthy you live and i think that's part of part of part of that is psychedelics is that uh, is is making us realize that is way more important uh, uh, here here i mean i i think that's a great point like 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 loneliness is we know it's killing people but like we don't have drugs for it. Like no one, there's, there's no big farmer like we're going to give a drug to treat. You know, it's just not a thing. But right? if like, you ask anyone who took MDMA, they just want to hug everyone and be part of everyone's uh, little mini family, right? Well, but with psilocybin, what most people describe is this experience of unity. They feel like connected to the world and they feel able to do things that they were unable to do before. That's a very common experience and feeling connected to other people. So so I, I agree. With, I think that's a really good point. I, I think that's a really important area for us to go forward. I, th I think psychiatry, we've tried to like qu be quantitative and I, it's really important, right? But like to quantify the subjective state, like unhappiness. And like, we're, so what we do is we're like, oh, you know, your sleep and how many symptoms do you have? And we, we, ha we had to do something, <laughs> you know, but it doesn't really capture the richness of, of a full life. And, and that's a really hard thing.
One last question for you, though, is what what is the time frame? What is the time horizon? I mean, there's so much enthusiasm going on. What do you what do you feel the t- time frame is in terms of like ma- major uh, discoveries or clinical studies that come out that kind of val? Is it is it one year? Is it two years? Is it five years? It's a complex question, and I would say it's kind of in multiple. You're talking about multiple things. So so amazing results are coming out every day. Like it feels like the psychedelic research is like exponentially growing. You know, and so it's you can't even keep up with it anymore. <laughs> it's like boom, 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 and all amazing stuff. Like there was just a science paper that w- that just showed that that it, the psychedelics drugs m- probably work by going inside the cell, the neuron, and binding to the 5-HT2A receptor inside the cell, not the one on the surface, the one on the inside of the cell. This is like. You know, crazy. You're like, what? All the all the textbooks put the receptors on the cell surface, but it turns out all of our psychotropics actually cross into the cell inside, and and serotonin doesn't. And it's a very elegant study. That's like a crazy, like mind is like boom. Like, what are we even doing? Like, holy smoke! All my drugs have been going inside cells all this time, and I had no idea. You know, right? So it's like amazing things are coming out all the time. There's also this thing about rescheduling with the FDA and. MDMA is probably the farthest along and people are saying in the next year, but they've been saying that for like five years. So I don't know. <laughs> and, and, then, and then there's also like a societal thing, like these states are moving along, along with their sort of laboratories of democracy, you know, <laughs> the Oregon and Colorado and decriminalization movements and expanded access. And there are all sorts of different paths that are kind of societal or political that are also going along. So I don't, I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't know. Amazing. Well, lo- lots of, uh, lots of intrigue and interest in this space um, by, by no, uh, the doctors of private medical, by, by the members and, and by society at large. And I, I applaud you for being one of the good guys who tells the truth and, and, and kind of keeps the, keeps the science at the forefront. And, and I, you know, to your point, Hadi, the loneliness, the people on the other end of this, this is not just an industry. This is about people. This is about uh, trying to get people who have been traumatized, depressed, addicted back on track in some way. And, and it's, uh, it's really interesting. So thank you, Josh, for joining us today. My pleasure. Happy to come back anytime. Uh, you know, if I come back in a month, it'll be a whole new set of studies that I can tell you about. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Inside Medicine, a private medical production. We hope we've inspired you to think differently about your health and the healthcare system. Please subscribe to our podcast and our medical dispatch, which you can find on our website, privatemedical.org. You can find the link in the show notes.